Okay, if you would, uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. I will be dealing this morning with Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, through Genesis chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, help me. I feel utterly inadequate without your spirit. Without your constant help to unfold your holy word to us, to be a teacher, to be a helper to your saints, to be a gospel preacher to the lost. So this morning I beg of your help for me and I beg of your presence to continue strongly in our midst that we may worship you in Genesis this morning to the glory of your holy name. Amen. This is week 10 in the series, God's Purpose in Redemptive History. And so this morning we are now again picking up in the timeline of redemptive history as it's unfolding. All the way back, that's a joke, to Genesis 1-1, to chapter 2, verse 4, we saw God created. And we pondered God for a while. We pondered why He created. And we saw He created everything, and particularly humanity, for His glory. Well, then in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way to chapter 3, verse 24, then we saw the fall of man in the garden and the devastation it brought upon all humanity from then on out. And then we pondered God's judgment on sinners. And then last week, we pondered God's mercy from the cross of Christ to sinners. And so, this morning, that brings us then to look at Genesis 3.15. And then what follows, at least through chapter 5, but we'll go into chapter 6. So if you are there in Genesis 3.15, read with me. I will put enmity, God is speaking, to the serpent in judgment. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so we will see this morning, this is a story. And the story continues. And we try to make sense of it. And we will see God shows these two seeds or lines. One, the seed of the serpent, the descendants of the serpent, Cain. Secondly, Abel, the seed of the woman. And his replacement, Seth, and his descendants, the seed of the woman. In this text, the woman's 
offspring, which you could translate in some translations do, it is the Hebrew word for seed. That's how you would usually talk about your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. That word is a collective noun, like a team. You don't just mean one person. A team means whoever's on that team. The seed of the woman is collective of all who are from that line that will come. Now we do also see as Scripture unveils itself through redemptive history, there is, and this happens a lot with prophecy in the Old Testament, a twofold meaning. Because within the collective that will come of the seed of the woman, of the godly line, there is one, Jesus, the seed. And it's right there also in verse 15 where he will crush your head. You'll bruise his heel. He'll suffer. And Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And so the seed can mean Jesus Christ or it can mean the people of God in the godly line. Now, in the original, as Israel is reading this, They're going to read it, not as a Savior is going to come. They're going to read it the way it's meant to be read for them and how the story unfolds. There are two lines of people that are going to come in chapter 4 and 5 that are demonstrating the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Okay? So contextually then, big question as we read the story that we have before us in Genesis here. And that is, who are the seed or the offspring of the serpent? And who's the offspring of the woman? And so here's my main point. Here's the sermon. Here's the main point of the sermon this morning. That we will see that the offspring of the woman in this story are the born-again people. And the offspring of the serpent are those who are not. The unregenerate. So, if you're there, chapter 4, let's read verses 1 to 10. Because after the judgment, which included 3.15 that we read, the next thing, we, he picks up the story, starting in chapter 4. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Cain 
if you do well, what is right, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. But you must rule over it. <coughs> Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where's Abel, your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This Cain and Abel story is illustrating the seed, the offspring of the serpent, and the seed, the offspring of the woman. Cain is the seed of the serpent in the story. Right after God pronounces judgment, this comes immediately after it. And what do you see? Enmity. Hatred. Hostility. Of Cain towards Abel. And he murders him. And thus people who are after the motivation of who Cain is, they are the seed of the serpent. And those who are like Abel are the seed of the woman. Now, I wonder if, I'm convinced that is the intention of the story as it unfolds. Particularly because after this also in chapter 4 and chapter 5, God ordains that the seed of Cain be given and the seed of Abel, I mean Seth, be given. And the stark contrast between what he tells us about those two lines is just crystal clear. And later Jesus will say, to those who are the offspring of Cain, you are of your father, the devil. Your father's will is what you follow. So when we say seed of the serpent here, yes, he doesn't give physical birth. Jesus didn't mean that either, that Satan gives physical birth. He's talking about a spiritual condition that makes the serpent or the devil their father, as opposed to God, the godly line of the seed of the woman. And then you go to the very last book of the Bible, and it picks up on this theme in chapter 12 of the book of Revelation. I'll read, starting with verse 15. The serpent, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon, dragon, serpent are the same in this kind of language, the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious 
with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of the woman's seed, offspring. That is, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So Abel, and then his replacement, Seth, they are the seed, the line of the woman of Genesis 3.15. Thank you. So now, the point when we were just looking in chapter 4 of them bringing the offerings, the point is the motive of Cain. The point is the motive of Abel. Let's read verses 2 to 5 again. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain... And his offering, he had no regard. And so you read the text. It doesn't just say like Cain. He, here's Cain's work. This is what he does for work. It's how he makes a living. He's a farmer of vegetables. He brought. Cain's a farmer of animals. Didn't just say he brought. It says he brought the firstborn. He brought the fat portions which means throughout the scripture, you see that term a lot, the best, the choicest. Firstborn throughout the scripture is this idea of, again, the best, the preeminent. Abel says it's time to go to church. And he can't wait to bring his offering, the best. Cain also said it's time to go to church. Any old pumpkin will do. Guess he wants me to bring it. Abel's was acceptable to God because it came from a heart. A heart that was expressing its trust and love and dependence in God's ownership of the universe and his own life and being and welfare. That's why it was acceptable. The reason it was acceptable, if you've ever heard this, is not because it was a lamb and therefore there was bloodshed. That's not why. You can't get that at this time in redemptive history. And you read the text. Why are the words put the way they're put? The reason has to do with what's going on in the heart. And God's problem with Cain is if you do well or right or good, because the problem is... It's not because it's a vegetable. The problem is with you, Cain. And it's sin. And he counseled him. If you change, yours will be just as acceptable. The contrast between Cain and Abel was in the motive of their bringing an offering.
Abel's, this was the evidence of his heart. It was the evidence that he desired to express to God, to his Creator, how fulfilled he was in his fellowship with him and thankful for his ongoing care. Time to go tell God with your stuff how much you love him. And he gets the firstborn. And he gets. The fat, the best portions of the land. Not the stuff that no one likes. Cain then comes. And it's nothing special. He's just going through the motions. That's what I'm supposed to do. For him, all he can probably think about is that's just one less pumpkin I have to live on. did what Abel did in the best portions and the fat and the first born I might not be able to pay for Disneyland passes next year for my family that's Cain's attitude and thus the point is that Abel for him God was his source of everything. God was his joy. He was a man of faith, saving faith, trust in who God was. Where do you get that? From the text, if you read it. Or if it's not good enough, I'll go to the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, where it's clear. Quote, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. That's the issue. And through which Abel was commended is righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And though or through his faith, though he died, Abel still teaches or speaks to us. And so Cain's problem is he had no genuine faith. And we know through the New Testament, Paul says, whatever is not of faith is sin. And God rebukes Cain and says, sin is your problem. And we know Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please or be pleasing or acceptable to God. For whoever would come to Him must believe that He exists, like Abel did, and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And Cain didn't have that. And don't get me wrong, you read the text, Cain got angry because his wasn't acceptable. Because Cain wanted to be praised. People who give of their life, their sexuality to obey God's commandments if they're unmarried. Who give of their, their, their time and their stuff. 
They don't ever wake up thinking, gosh, God, you've got to praise me somehow. Look what I've done. Neither did Abel. But people like Cain do. I give a pumpkin. And he's mad because God accepted his brothers. And he didn't accept mine. And he didn't say, well, Cain, that's pretty good of you. And so Cain's face fell. We all know what that means, right? Sometimes you can't hide your emotion. And so we read in verses 6 and 7, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Point is, yes, you will. And if you do not do well, you continue down this path. Sin is crouching at the door. And its desire, now crouching at the door is like a wild animal ready to bite. And its desire is for you or against you. But you must rule over it. I'm going to read that again. Well, really I'm going to read Joe's paraphrase. Which is, okay, Pastor Joe, how do you understand what we just read in verse 6 to 7? What's the meaning? So here it is. Cain, turn away from exalting yourself. Become like a dependent child. And then I'll delight in your offering as much as I do Abel's. Cain, you will find real joy there. But if you don't turn to dependence on me, then a terrible future awaits you because your sinful inclinations to exalt yourself is as dangerous as having a vicious wild animal at your front door ready to devour you. And so, in order to relieve his anger, And his sinful self-worship, Cain murdered his godly brother. And so this Cain-Abel story then, it is the clear example, outworking and illustration of the enmity that was predicted in Genesis 3.15. Cain and Abel's motives in life were radically different, is the point. And why were they different? Because God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between your offspring and the woman's offspring. And he did. And thus... There was enmity. God put enmity between Cain and Abel by causing Abel to be born again. And this raises the huge question of God's activity in this Cain-Abel story. Because if you've been following 
this series, as it's been unfolding, in the fall, we have already been there of what happened. It wasn't just Adam and Eve who were affected in their sin and fall, but the entire human race, including their babies, Cain and Abel, who, according to Paul, clearly they were born into sin nature. Children deserving of God's wrath. Which is not merely I sin, but the light went out in Abel just as much as it did in Cain. He had no natural delight and joy in God. If you think he did, then you're a Pelagian. Three of you probably know that guy from history. Which is heresy. They were totally depraved. Abel as much as Cain. And then you get the story. And you've got to ask the question, how did it happen? Well, the answer is because God did what He said He's going to do. Genesis 3.15. He put enmity between Cain and Abel. How? By giving Abel a new heart that he wasn't born with. By regenerating him, which produced Abel's saving faith. There was no difference between Cain and Abel, their birth. But God in his freedom chose to regenerate or cause to be born again Abel. And not Cain. Concerning that crucial issue, which has been true from the beginning and will be to the end, the Apostle Paul says this in Romans 9, 15-18. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then Paul concludes. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He has mercy on whomever He wills, and He hardens whomever He wills. End quote. So because of God's mercy of new birth, Abel came to treasure God. He began to share in God's delight in God. And from that joy, His offering came. As Paul would later say, God's not after mere external acts like Cain. He's not after no acts either. He's after you being a joyful giver. So the solution, I have no joy in giving, is not, I won't give. It's change my heart. The joy of living in sexual purity is a single person. It's not, well, it's just, I don't have joy in that. So I will sin. No, it is get on your face and say, God, change my heart. 
And I can go on with a thousand things we all wrestle with. But on the other hand, he did not regenerate Cain. He talked to him after it. He counseled him to do well. He counseled him about his own sin. You have to change. You've got to overcome this. You can't let it rule you. And this is pretty much what we deal with today. With the clarity of why Abel could be a saved person. Because as we saw last week, Jesus was as a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And Jesus purchased Abel's birth. But now on this side of the cross, we got it. And the same thing, if God counseling Cain and we counsel each other and you preach the gospel out there and look at that, that person like Abel believed and another person remained like Cain. Because there's a difference between the general call, God saying to Cain, you should do well, I will accept you. Abel had that call too. Abel knew that. But the general call which goes to all, is different than the effectual call. When God calls a person, they cannot not come to Him and enjoy Him and believe in Him. Because the effectual call is not merely the gospel going out. It is the gospel going out and then God intimately changing her heart. And she's alive. And she has ears to hear. And Jesus is amazing to her. And she just can't understand why her friend doesn't see it. Because it's a miracle and a gift of mercy to her. You remember how Paul talked about just what I just said? So I guess I interpreted the text first, and, but now we'll go back and read it. This is how Paul talks about the gospel in 1 Corinthians 1. Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's natural, the world, through its own wisdom, apart from God. Therefore, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. So he goes out and preaches. And then he says, for the Jews, his fellow Jews as a Jew, for the Jews, they demand signs. And the Greeks, they seek wisdom. We don't accommodate them. We preach foolishness. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. And they all end up like Cain. Because they are Cain. Unless God does something mercifully to them. And that's the next line in the text. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, to them, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then they bring the firstborn and the best pumpkin and the fat because their heart changed. 
God counsels him. And you read on the text. <laughs> he didn't pay attention to it. He didn't allow reason to penetrate. And thus trust in God. Why did Cain not do that? Because he's a sinner. That's his nature. And God did not overcome his radical, corrupt sin nature of his heart and call him to faith. And thus, Cain and then his descendants, as the text goes on, they're properly called the serpent's seed. Because if you remember, in the fall, in the Garden of Eden, it is this very same unbelief of Cain and his descendants. Their radical independence that they want, I'm equal with God, was exactly what the serpent was calling for in his temptation. And she, Eve, bought it. Now I'm going to put a big parenthesis in here now at this point because of what I have said and just, met, just to make sure it's crystal clear. When you open up your Bible, four-fifths of it, we call it the Old Testament. And we do refer to Old Testament saints appropriately, holy ones. And what we mean is by that is believers. We mean those who love God, those who walk with God, those who follow God, those like David who have a heart after God, those like Abraham who have faith in God and are, are justified and he's our model. We talk about Old Testament saints. When we refer to them as Old Testament saints, it's because every one of those who are true saints in the Old Testament were born again. They were regenerated. The Holy Spirit came to live within them and changed their heart. In the Old Testament, that is figuratively called a circumcised heart. It's called a new heart of flesh, softness, as opposed to a rock. In the New Testament, it's called being born of God. In 1 John. Jesus called it being born again. Unless you're born again, you cannot enter nor even see the kingdom of God. Paul in Titus 3.5 called it the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 1.3, According to God the Father's in His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. And so, new birth, or another way to say that is regeneration. That's why Abel loved God. And thus why there was enmity, hatred, hostility between him and his unregenerate brother, Cain. So when you open the Old Testament, and you, God sends out the ten spies. Twelve spies. Ten of them are unbelieving. Two of them believe God's word. Why? Because Caleb and Joshua were born again. Numbers 14.25 says, Caleb was of a different spirit than them. And thus Caleb followed the Lord 
fully. And then it says of Joshua clearly in Numbers 27, 18, that he was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, for instance, at that time, like all the times through history, Caleb and Joshua were part of the small remnant, the small portion within all of Israel of born-again people who existed then and always existed throughout Israel's history. The difference of the remnant and the non-remnant was the difference between the woman's seed and the serpent's seed. The regenerate line and the unregenerate line. You remember how Paul spoke of this in, in Romans 11? Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life now. But what is God's reply to him? Wrong. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so Paul says, and so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And so the enmity that God foretold came because of new birth. That's why Abel was pleasing to God. Couldn't be any other way. See, when Paul writes in Romans 8, don't think it doesn't apply to Abel, to everyone after the fall. It does. When he says, for the mind that is set on the flesh, just naturally the way it's born into this world, fallen, it is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Abel couldn't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Abel couldn't please God. And then Paul says, it would be applicable to Abel and to all of us who believe in Jesus and are in Him. You, however, you're not in the flesh. But you're in the Spirit. If in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. And so Abel's offering was pleasing to God because God acted and placed His Holy Spirit within Abel and brought him back to life mercifully, which produced in Abel a saving faith, a loving delight in who God is. Without which, the scripture is clear, Abel would not be able to please God. And so all the way through, all the Old Testament saints were regenerated. They were born again. So for you to understand that as you read four-fifths of the Bible, that will allow you to understand what's happening. Because if you care about Clarity. You can't understand what's happening in the Old Testament. You can't understand how Abraham can have faith and be justified by God if he wasn't born again. They all were. That is those who believed. 
to deny that they were would be to say, Enoch walked with God. Abraham was a friend of God. God liked Abraham, no problem with him. David had a man, was a man after God's own heart. Oh, oh, at the same time as Paul says, they're utterly in the flesh, not regenerated, and thus they were hostile to God. Had no desire to obey God. And it doesn't make any sense. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, both prophesied about the new covenant. Which is the, the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant was the old covenant God gives the general call, gives His Ten Commandments and the many more to His people. And for the most part, except for the remnant, He doesn't bring new birth with it. And thus they're hardened by it. But He says, there's a day coming where I'm going to make a new covenant. It won't be like the old when they just rebelled and rebelled and rebelled. But I will write my law on their hearts. I will take their rock hard heart and turn it into soft flesh. I will put my spirit within them. So much so, they won't even need to say, got to know the Lord. Because everyone in that covenant, the new covenant, they will all know me. Intimately. And that's that. So the Old Testament saints who were living during the Old Covenant times, they were New Covenant people before the time. And no wonder Jesus said to Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand new birth? What's the matter with you? You don't understand circumcision of the heart, Nicodemus? You don't understand my spirit going within a person? Okay. It's there. It's all over. There. Alright. Quickly. We're not going to read all the way through it. We're going to get the flow now of what he does in chapter 4 and 5. It is connected to this whole line of the serpent and line of the woman. In chapter 4, you get Cain's seed, his descendants after God's rebuke of him. Then you're going to see fallen man, unregenerate, wants nothing to do with God. Radical independence growing as you read chapter 4. Cain marries and then the text says he left the presence of God. And settled in Nod. And then, why does it tell us about all the, the musical parts and the metal workers and all these skills where they can build a city? Because man is showing their independence. Their self-sufficiency. So much that now it's built and Cain names the city. After his son, Enoch. Make a name for my son, for me. This is degeneracy. This is the unregenerate. And human history is filled with it. Five generations after Cain, he then gives us a story of Lamech who became the ruler of the city in a polygamous, and then Lamech writes a song. 
in order to glorify himself. He says, here it is. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have just killed a man because he wounded me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And so throughout chapter 4, we get this lineage of Cain, and it is just showcasing from the fall to leaving the presence of God, the murder of the righteous brother, and now down the line, Lamech, his descendant, with this bloody vengeance. You stepped on my toe, I kill you because I'm preeminent. Self-worship, domination. Then you come to Seth's descendants, who is the woman's seed. Look at verses 25 to 26 in chapter 4. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. What are you talking about? You already had Cain. You already had a kid. It wasn't about just having a kid. It was about Abel was the other seed. Is the point in the story. In the stead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh. And then this is, you don't see this in Cain's line. Here it is. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's a worship community that he's laying out, essentially. It's why he's doing it. People began to call upon the name of the Lord. So in the text, the seed of the woman is resumed. And you get to chapter 5, verse 1, and you read, This is the book of the generations of Adam when God created man. He made him in his likeness, in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. Almost why this reiteration of that? He didn't do it with Cain. He does it here because of the line that he predicted of the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And then as you go through the genealogy of Seth throughout chapter 5, it is in stark contrast to Cain's in chapter 4. You get to the seventh generation of Seth's kids, and then there's Enoch. And it says, and Enoch walked with God. He so enjoyed God and His presence that it then it just says, and God took him. And then Enoch's grandson, Lamech, 
He had hope for God to do something about the evil. Now it's floating around in the world. And that would come through his son, God working through him, Noah. And so that's where we will pick up when we come back in the timeline of redemptive history. Because of Christmas and all will be after the new year. But God's purpose in this is to glorify himself through mercy. I, God, will put enmity between you, which is mercy. You won't all be the line of Cain. I will bring new birth and have my remnant. I'll do it. And so from the get-go, the beginning of the Bible, it's clear. God is about creating two peaceful now since the fall. The born-agains and the non-born-agains. God then, and has always had, a remnant of His people. From Abel, to Seth, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, to David, to Moses, to Caleb, and Jeremiah. He's always had them. And He always will to the end. Until that day when He separates the sheep from the goats. As Paul said, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And so for us, we should, as the Hebrew writer wants us to do, ponder Abel. Ponder his offering, his heart, as Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians 6, in God's commandments to those who are born again and believe sexually, you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in the way you use your body. And like Abel, recognizing you don't belong to yourself. Every gift and thing and piece of money and property and life and time we have is a stewardship ultimately, not an ownership. Ponder Abel's heart. And thus, as we do for those of us who believe in Jesus, and if you don't or not sure you do, this is the biblical command of this God we hear about. Believe. Don't make excuses. There is no excuse not to believe based upon I'm not sure He called me. That's not how it works. It is. Believe. That's His command. 
And as we do, then we should be absolutely, gloriously humbled. Not humiliated. Humbled. To learn that we, like Abel, like Seth, are saved by grace. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were blind and rebellious, just like Cain. And then by grace alone, you were awakened to the beauty of Christ and the gospel and of your creator by new birth. And that one day on judgment day, as we stand there, To give an account of why you are there standing with Abel. And not over there with Cain and his seed. You will not say, well, it's because I was smarter. And I was somehow better to recognize the right path for real eternity. That's why I love God. You won't say it. But with tears of joy and a holy trembling, you'll say, thank you. And this life is about practicing that thank you. Now, down here, daily in our lives. You'll say, oh, Father, You are the one who put enmity between the godly line. Those who are in Christ and the serpent line. Those who aren't. You are the one who made me a part of the remnant chosen by grace. That's what we will say. Oh, may we be those who try to live our lives like Abel, who pleased God. Father, you are good. Your mercy is amazing. Like Abel, there is nothing we do or offer or feel that is without the remnants, the taint of sin. But because of Your grace, what we do feel and the joy we do have in portion fighting with our sinful hearts is the sign of your merciful saving grace. And that is why, oh Father, we do long for and look for the coming again of your Son to release us from this bondage of duality, tension, where we will freely and unhinderedly forever in the resurrection delight Your mercy is good. Your son is precious. 
His incarnation is a gift for us forever. For he will forever be our human king, the God-man.